together. It's good to be in, together as God's people, and it's even better to look at his word for a few minutes. Shall we pray? So we just turn to God's word together. Father God, we just want to thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we can be a family. And Lord, we just know that we have times where we can rejoice together, Lord, from things that happen. We have times where we support each other. And Lord, and it's the same all the time. And Father, we know that our strength is found in you. Our joy is found in you. Our grace is found in you, Lord. You are our rock. You are our salvation. You are the one who is with us in times of trial and who we can celebrate with in times of joy. And we just pray now as we look at your word that, Father God, you would just ignite our hearts, that we would be filled with your spirit, that we would know you better than we ever have done before. Lord, give us a glimpse of your glory, Lord. Give us a clear clarity, a clear picture of who you are and how wonderful and majestic you are. Remind us of the cross, Father God, where all of it changed, where Jesus died for our sin because of our sin, because of us, yet, Lord, because of your love. He died for us and rose again, defeating death itself. Lord, he is our hope. He is our saviour, our king, our messiah. We are his ambassadors. And Lord, we pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we hear only your words and your words alone. Lord, embed your truth in our hearts this morning, even our soul. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Claire Booth uh, Luce, is how I'm going to pronounce it, uh, a former U.S. ambassador to Italy. Anyone know who she is? No? Shame on you. Um, anyone partly Italian? That's even worse, isn't it? You should know. You should know, you should know your ambassadors, really. Anyway, never mind. Um, <clears throat> she once non-famously said, um, there are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. There are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. And whilst that's not a perfect phrase by any stretch, because there are situations that genuinely seem to have no way out, for the Christian, there's always hope to be found in whatever situation we might find ourselves in. And we thank God for that. We thank God that hope is the thing that we have in abundance, regardless of our situations. I came across a story of a a painting this week uh, in an American gallery, I think, that was a simple painting, yet had a profound message attached. And hopefully it'll appear on the screen. There we are, look at that. Um, This isn't the actual photo, by the way, I couldn't find it. Um, But I I came across a story of a famous painting. Never mind. Um, Imagine that this is vaguely it. Um, It's a story, the picture itself is of an old burnt-out mountain shack all that remained was the chimney, uh, the ch- charred debris of what had once been a family's sole possession, their home with everything they owned in it, was in ruins around this chimney that only remained. And in this drawing, in front of this destroyed home, stood an old grandfatherly-looking man with a small boy clutching his last pair of clothes that he'd managed to rescue from the fire. It had been evident the young boy had been crying his heart out. And beneath the picture, the artist wrote what he felt the old man was saying to the boy. They're simple words, yet present a profound theology and philosophy of life. And those words were, hush child, God ain't dead. The point being that this boy had lost every earthly possession. But those eternal truths and promises of God remained despite the ash, despite the debris. And such is our hope as God's people, be it illness or loss, hardship or hatred, that nothing can rob us of God's love. Nothing can rob us of our salvation. Nothing can rob us of our future in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this morning, I just want to dwell on that thought just for a few minutes as we go through the most famous chapter probably in the Bible, in the book of Romans, a letter to the church and the Christians in Rome written by Apostle 
Paul. Uh, the book of Romans, or the letter to the Roman church, as we should probably call it, was probably written around AD 57. They reckon near the end of Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, what's unusual about this letter is that Paul hadn't actually started this church in Rome. He hadn't actually visited the church before. And so he writes to them before he goes to visit because he wants to give them a theological foundation so that when he comes, they can talk the things of God and then they can know what he's on about. They can know what he's talking about. And this is why Romans is such an important book for the modern-day Christian to study and think about and really understand. This book, this letter, deals with sin, where it comes from, the fact that we're born sinful. We're born with this problem of sin. It talks about the effects of sin, how that when we keep sinning, we just go on a downward spiral. And then we talked about the wrath of God, talks about original sin. He talks about faith and its role in setting us free from sin. How Jesus is like a second Adam. We're all in the line of Adam, aren't we? And we're all born. He fell, him and Eve fell. And therefore every single one of us are sinful because of that original sin of them. None of us are born perfect, but all born broken. But Jesus is like the second Adam. He's like a new Adam. And spiritually we become in his line. And therefore we can be made perfect in Christ. He talks in this letter about God's salvation plan, talks about the law. He's writing to a Jewish audience. He talks about the futility of trying to earn your salvation by observing Old Testament law. Chapter 7 is really key. Paul explains in personal detail just what sin does in a person's life. He talks about the tension that we all feel between doing right and actually that slightly darker passion of doing wrong. And we all often are having that fight almost on a daily basis, aren't we? Between what we know we ought to do and what that kind of more carnal side of us says. Oh, forget it. Do that tomorrow. Do it now. It's only Monday. You've got a few days to make it right, haven't you? Or whatever your thoughts may be. He says this in chapter 7, verse 14. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but the sin living in me. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me. That is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Ever felt like that? For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. And he goes on, this is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do not do what I want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work in me. What a wretched man I am. I wonder if you've ever felt like that, ever said to yourself, what a wretched person I am, what a horrible human being I've become. Who am I? I should be so much better by now, but I'm still struggling with that sin. And so as he ends chapter 7, Paul asks a question. What I like about Paul is he asks his own questions and then gives his own answers. And I'm going to start doing that actually. Who thinks I'm wonderful? I do. Job done. Much easier. Um, If you start asking people what they think they tell you, and that's not very handy. Um, Anyway, it's a joke obviously. I'm extremely happy to have you all tell me what you think of me. Anyway, so end of chapter 7, he says in that same verse, after saying what a wretched man I am, he writes, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who's going to release me from this tension, this battle, this war, this powerful sin? And then in the next verse, 
um, verse 25, he writes this most simple yet wonderful verse. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And chapter 8, which we're going to look at briefly this morning, really, I think, is taking one verse and just exploding it out and applying it and expanding it. And that's what the rescue of Christ looks like, and we're about to see that in chapter 8. And this morning, um, it's worth remembering, isn't it, that actually what he's about to talk to us in chapter 8 is about the joy of the Christian life, the joy of the Christian life that's on offer through faith in Jesus Christ, faith in his life and his death and his resurrection from the grave, his defeat of sin and his soon return, because he will soon return. Chapter 8 is about the life that we have in Jesus Christ through the Spirit. And we should remember that when Paul writes this letter to this church in Rome, he's not just writing to regular people with no problems, he's writing to people who are struggling with sin, he's writing to people as well who are suffering in their bodies, going through physical pain. Verse 18, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He's addressing a community. Some of them are struggling with that tension and that battle against sin. Some are struggling with physical conditions as well. And this morning, I just want to say before we say anything else, that actually you should let these verses, let this chapter lift you up. You may be in that pit of self-loathing this morning. You may find yourself struggling, doing what you don't want to do, knowing that you keep doing it, even though you promised God that will be the last time. And you think, surely he hates me by now. Surely I'm out of his love. Surely I'm out of heaven. This must be, I've done it 75 times now. And I promised on number 62 that that was definitely it. And I really meant it then. But actually these verses need to lift you out of that pit of self-loathing and despair because that's not where God puts you and that is not true of you either you may feel it but that is not the truth of your spiritual position in Christ Jesus and maybe you're facing a road marked with suffering you need to know that your hope in Christ is both past present and future and will be greater than what you face now in fact let me illustrate it seems to me that um, when we suffer when we go through difficult times we become uh, squeezed, don't we? This is a sponge, by the way. And, uh, oh, yeah, okay, you knew that. Anyway, so, when you go through difficult times, what happens? You're squeezed, aren't you? And really, sometimes your life and your passion and maybe just your sense of carrying on just sort of gets squeezed out of you. And really, what you need to do this morning is begin to suck in the things of God. And really, this sponge is now empty, isn't it? A lot of people empty themselves, empty their minds because they think that's how they get through life. But if this water represents the things of God, then every single one of us this morning needs to suck in the Bible, suck in the presence of God so that when we're squeezed in trouble and trial and temptation, actually God flows out. The goodness of God, the grace of God flows out in varying degrees of power. Oh, we're hand now. Anyway, um, because actually... If you fill your life with the wrong thing, it's that that's going to come out when you go through difficult moments. We need to let the verses and the word of God and the presence of God and the spiritual of God come right into the center of our lives so that when we go through trouble, that is what's in us. That is what sustains us. So, 
What is our hope in Christ? What is this rescue that Paul talks about in chapter 8? What have we been rescued from in Jesus Christ? What is this freedom that we have on the cross? And there are just a few things I want to run through this morning. The first thing Paul talks about, this rescue of Jesus he alludes to in chapter, in verse 25 of chapter 7. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. What have we been delivered from? Well, the first thing he says in chapter 8 is we've been delivered, released from the law um, and in verses 1 to 4, Paul writes this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his only Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Paul writes to Jewish Christians, Christians who have become, uh, Jews who have become Christians and for them their whole life was built up around the law of the Old Testament. God revealed his character, revealed his will in this law of the Old Testament, revealed at Sinai to Moses. And they were called to obey it in its entirety, to be perfect as God was perfect. But that law was never meant to save them. It was meant simply to reveal what sin was and reveal their need of a saviour. And so this law became like a burden for God's people. And Paul writes, you've been released from that in Christ Jesus because he has done what you never could. He actually has fulfilled that law perfectly. He is like the most perfect Jew. And then you're in him, so you've fulfilled it as well. You've been released from that law, so there's no condemnation. They're no longer lawbreakers, perhaps in God's sight. But there's another law he alludes to in these first couple of verses. The law of sin and death. And actually, we've been set free, haven't we, as Christians, from the law of sin and death. In John chapter 8, Jesus describes us as slaves to sin. You're a slave to your sin unless Christ removes it from your life. We all do what we don't want to do because it enslaves us. And Paul says, but in Christ, you've been set free from that law. That sin no longer has dominion over you. You've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness. You now live in the kingdom of light. This is where you live now. You're free from that. He talks about being free from death, the law of sin and death. Hebrews speaks of people being bound to the slavery, the fear of death. But then it goes on to say that in Christ, death has lost its sting. We have nothing to fear as God's people. We've been released from the law of the Old Testament and the law of sin and even death. How wonderful is that? The second thing that we've been rescued and the effect of that rescue is we've been endowed with life. He talks about, in verses 9 to 11, the life we have in Christ. He writes, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even through your bo- though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. Paul writes that not only have we been rescued from sin, we have been endowed with life. And it's the most amazing thing. We've been given life, abundant life. Life in all its fullness. Life that overflows out of us, or at least it should. A life that is to the full. 
I became a Christian when I was 11 years old. That was the first day of the rest of my life. I didn't live for the first 11 years of my life. My life started properly 11 years old when I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Saviour. I've been given a life that is amazing. We talk about eternal life, don't we, as Christians? We say, well, one day I'll live forever. No, that's wrong. Because I was given everlasting life at age 11. That's when it started. God put everlasting life in this frail body. And this life that I have now will go on forever and ever and ever. But we don't live like we have everlasting life. We don't live like we have abundant life. We don't live as if we are totally free and totally full. We sometimes live as if we were once what we were before. Let me explain. I've got a present for Rebecca, actually. There we are. Can I throw it at you? That's right. Oh, good. Now, before you open it, what's wrong with that present? Yes, apart from the cars wrapping paper. So when should Rebecca open it? Christmas. That's right, isn't it? In my house, it's very strict. Uh, my mum was very strict growing up, but we, we couldn't open anything on Christmas Eve. Actually, hands up who lets their kids open presents on Christmas Eve. Wow. What have you put your hand up for? <laughs> well, I don't like it anyway, because there's a thing called tradition. And, uh, and this is what makes or breaks a family, in my humble opinion. Anyway, so we don't like, I don't like Christmas, but I think Christmas Day is one minute past 12. It's not actually, it's a half past seven, isn't it? Or half past six. That's when you open your present. That's when the present is for. So I buy, or well, we buy our children, hopefully thoughtful presents. And they have them, and they're wrapped up, and they're under the tree. They're theirs, but they're not allowed them until later. And most Christians, if they're honest, when they think about living forever and an abundant life and the life of Christ that's meant to overflow like a, like a river inside of us, they don't think of having that as now. They think of having that as later. They think of it being like the Christmas present I've got to wait to open at the end of my life. And that's not right. You can open it if you want, Rebecca. I'll have it back, though. You can open it if you want. Uh... Everyone loves to open a present. I thought of you. I thought, what would Rebecca Mulholland like most? And, uh, this is a teacher for sitting in the front, isn't it? Um, this is a big gap. I just sense you're into gaming. More importantly, I sense you're into retro gaming. There we are. So it's, uh, it's 200 games on there. Anyway, um, you can enjoy that. I said, you know, many a romantic evening ahead for you and David, I'm sure. Anyway, but the point is, the life you have in Christ is for now. It isn't for later. It's for now. We should live as if we're living forever. We should live as if the life we have is bigger than anything that we're going from that we're going through and we live life to the full and it starts now we have an unlimited life we have a life that is already full of purpose already full of power already full of passion it just happens to be housed in bodies that don't work very well paul says later on that he houses our treasure in jars of clay these bodies are like jars of clay paul will say later on and actually our bodies may fail us but the life of christ that we've been set free from sin for will never, ever fail us. It will go on for eternity. The third thing that we've been, uh, we have is that we're now in Christ. Verses 14 to 17, Paul just gives us a list of titles that we have once we become Christians. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Now if you are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. How wonderful is that? 
that when you became a Christian, God considers you one of his children. I've got a brilliant photo. Uh, this, is, this is what you can do with being a child of God. Oh, phew. <laughs> I don't advocate that, obviously. But that man understands who he is. And I was having a conversation with my friend just yesterday at a barbecue. Around, and he said to me, we were talking the other day in my church, and they were discussing being a son of the king, a child of the king. And he said to me, I guess that kind of makes me like a prince. I get hung up on that word. But he understood his value goes up. So I'm a child of God. I am one of God's people. I'm in God's family. But it gets better, doesn't we're adopted into that family. Now, if you come from a broken family like I do, there's something wonderful to know that there's a God out there that just looks and says, I want you, you're mine. Much like the adoption process, I want you. We're going to have you, you're going to be ours. You'll be our family. And that's how wonderful it is. There's something proactive about the whole thing. I became a Christian and God chose me. The Bible says he chose us in Christ before the formation of the world. Even before one atom had been created by the voice of God. Not by accident. By the voice of God. By his creative hand. He'd already chosen us in Christ. There's a proactive side. God wants you. He wants us. He's chosen us. And it is a wonderful thing. And that leads to this intimate relationship. This God that we worship, we don't just treat him like an angry king who we're not allowed to go near. We treat him with reverence, of course. But we call him Abba Father. Intimate. Close. He's my father, my dad in heaven. And I haven't even got the right language for that relationship because it feels wrong when I say dad. But it's richer than that, actually. Richer than that. It's more intimate than that. He is the king of all kings. But I get to call him father, dad. And that is the most wonderful thing. But even if it could get any better, we become heirs of his coming kingdom. The kingdom that is coming with Christ is our inheritance. That's what we have in Christ. I'm going to play you a very short video. Um, And this video just lists all the things we have in Christ. Um, I'm not sure I would go along with every single one of them. He mentioned standing on snakes because Paul did in the book of Acts. I wouldn't suggest you do that um, unless God tells you to. But um, let's just listen to this. This is what we have in Christ. According to the Bible, I am God's possession. I am his child, his workmanship. I want you to apply this to yourself. You are his friend, his temple, his vessel, a co-laborer and his witness. You're a soldier, an ambassador, a building, a temple. You're his husbandry. You're a minister and an instrument. You're his chosen, his beloved, his precious jewel and his heritage. In Christ, you've been redeemed by blood, set free from sin, set free from Satan, set free from the kingdom of darkness, chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined to be like Jesus, forgiven of all your trespasses, washed in blood, given a sound mind, given the Holy Spirit, adopted into God's family, justified freely by his grace, given all things pertaining to life, given great and precious promises, given ministry of reconciliation, given authority over the enemy, given access to God, and given wisdom for free. In Christ, you are complete, totally in him. 
free forever from sin's power. You're sanctified. You're fit for the master's use. You're loved eternally. You're eternally kept in the palm of his hand. You're kept from falling. You're kept by his very power and you're not condemned. You're one with the Lord. You're on your way to heaven, quickened by his mighty power, seated in heavenly places. You're the head and not the tail. You're the light in darkness. You're a candle in a dark place. You're a city set on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. You are his sheep. You're a citizen of heaven. You're hidden with Christ in God and protected from the evil one. You're kept by the power of God. You're secure in Christ. You're set on a rock. You're more than a conqueror. You're born again. You're a victor. You're healed by his stripes, covered by his blood, sheltered by his wing, and hidden in his secret place. In him you have access to the Father, a home in heaven waiting for you, all things in Christ, a living hope, an anchor to your soul, a hope sure and steadfast, authority to tread on serpents, power to witness, the tongue of the learned, the mind of Christ, boldness and access, peace with God, and faith like the grain of a mustard seed. And in Christ you can do all things, find mercy, come boldly to his throne, quench the fiery darts of the enemy, tread on him like a serpent, declare liberty to the captives, pray always, chase a thousand, defeat and overcome the enemy, and tread Satan underfoot. And the only things you cannot do in Christ is be separated from God, perish or be lost, be moved, be taken out of your Father's hand, be charged or accused, or be condemned. <laughs> That's what we have in Christ set free from that law of sin and death and we're not to replace with not having law of sin and death we're replaced with all of that and so much more in verse 18 paul talks about having a future it says i consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us this glory that is in our inheritance is better than our suffering verses 22 to 25 he says we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. He who hopes for what he already has, who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul says in Christ we have a certainty even in our suffering. What a thing to say that the hope that we have in Christ doesn't compare with the suffering that we go through. And some people go through terrible suffering. How good it is to know the hope we have in Christ is bigger than our worst day on this planet. Praise the Lord for that. What other hope is there? What do you say to people that go through difficult times if you can't say the hope in Christ is bigger than what you're going through? is better, is stronger, is more powerful. We often wonder where God is, and of course we do. We wonder why things happen, of course we do. But this is where God is, in the hope of glory, Christ in me. We don't know why things happen and when they happen or what makes them happen, but we know God is bigger and sovereign over our suffering, over our pain, over all the earth. Our hope in him is vastly greater than everything else, everything else, bar none. And it's good to know that at my lowest point, God is still God because God ain't dead. And he never will be. Ever, ever, ever. And the fifth thing, in Christ we are spirit-filled. I love this. In the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. But the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Wow. 
God's Holy Spirit who comes into you when you become a Christian, when you repent of your sin and you ask Christ into your life, that moment you are completely transformed, the old is gone, the new nature comes, God's Spirit dwells within you forever. And he searches you and he knows you. And those days where you just don't know what to say, he knows every single word and groan. In fact, he groans in a way you can't understand on your behalf to the King of Kings. When words fail, God doesn't. The Holy Spirit speaks for us. And so what is the message from Romans chapter 8? That the rescue in Christ is greater than the law, greater than the power of sin, greater than death, and greater even than our suffering. And so great is our hope, so certain is our foundation, so good in Jesus Christ that a man named Paul, who understood guilt, who understood rejection, who understood pain and he knew suffering, could declare with certainty the following words. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. A man who understood what it was to be beaten and kicked and punched and left for dead. A man who understood what it was like to be languishing in prison, hated by pretty much everyone, who had the guilt of his former life and a physical affliction to go with it, could declare these verses as well. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. And it just goes on and on and says these most wonderful words. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors. More than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Is there anything better that you can say to anybody on this planet except what we have just read? In fact, it's so good I'm reading it a second time. And if you want to shout no at any point because you agree, feel free. But I'm not going to make you. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord, absolutely. But that is the greatest truth. I'll go back to my sponge, because why not? You didn't get it the first time, I could tell. 
Those of you who are empty this morning, those of you that have had everything squeezed out and there's nothing left, and you're wondering if this is it, and you know, just give up. Shall I just become bitter and twisted or lonely or, or just angry? Shall I just be angry? That's easy, isn't it? Just put everybody at the other side of the door. What I've just read is actually what you should be soaking up. You should soak it up because such is the abundant life we have in Christ that nothing will ever squeeze it out if you continually go back to the King of Kings. That no matter what happens, it will always overflow out of you. It will always be in you and it will always save you. It will always be your foundation. Nothing will stand between you and the King if you let the King stand in you. And so we have a choice. There are two chapters that you could rest in this morning. You can rest in chapter 7 and the tension and the power of sin and give up and say, this is me, I'm always going to do the things I shouldn't. I'm always going to suffer that pain. Or you can stand in chapter 8 and say, no, I am in Christ and I am more than a conqueror. I'm going to stand there. I hope you join me. Let's pray. Father God, we just lift up all these most wonderful words in this amazing letter. And Lord, we just thank you that we can trust you Lord, we trust in you alone. We trust in you because you're the only one who made the world. You created this world, Lord, by the power of your mouth. There was nothing, only you. And you said, let there be light. Lord, our universe came into being. You have sustained it. You have blessed it. You've grown it. Every good thing comes from you. And yet, Lord, into this perfect world came sin. Lord, Satan tempted those first humans. And Lord, we have been suffering their sin and our own ever since. But Lord, thanks be to God that you rescued us in Christ. Thanks be to God that we need only ask forgiveness for our sin. And in comes your Holy Spirit and we are overflowing with your forgiveness. And Lord, we live an everlasting life now in these broken vessels. Father God, may we stand with confidence looking at what comes ahead, Lord, not with fear and trepidation, but knowing that whatever lies ahead, there is a bigger hope after it. A hope, Lord, that will know no end a goodness that will never let us down because we will see you face to face and we thank you for that. And Lord, we lift all these words to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Look at that.